Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. I'd like to introduce to you our first our speaker today, <clears throat> John Muldowney, who is an agriculture inspector uh, who is based in the Climate Change Policy Division in the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine. Uh, he has, he, over the next 25 minutes, John is going to give us an overview of the policy framework and targets for climate action in Irish agriculture and the roadmap to achieving Ireland's 2030 commitments um, over the next 10 years. Okay, perfect. Thanks, Mark, and good morning to everyone here. Um, again, it's a pleasure here to have the opportunity to contribute to this SkillNet series in terms of giving it an update in terms of our climate action requirements. So overall, I guess, uh, the Ag Climatized document, it's against the background of growing pressure for greater sustainability and visibility of that sustainability. And I guess, you know, it's all about protecting the green credentials of Irish agricultural produce and the consumers growing, increasing their scrutiny of products, what they're eating, what they're drinking. So it's important that Irish agriculture is able to step up into that space. Um, also, at the moment, you're probably aware that uh, Europe is proposing a new green deal for a climate neutral uh, society, which basically means that any residual agricultural emissions that will be in the European economy will have to be offset by increased removals. And that's very much along the lines of what Ireland would also be thinking. So as part of this European Green Deal, um, DG Sante had been hoping to, had scheduled to launch a new farm to fork strategy which again has been in the media a lot of recent, which will have a series of targets, anticipated targets, I guess, for a greener and healthier agriculture, in particular around, um, I guess, trying to reduce fertilizer and pesticide use, trying to increase organic farming in agriculture and trying to protect and enhance uh, biodiversity areas in the agricultural landscape. So this has been delayed because of the COVID-19 developments across Europe and the world. So um, we anticipate to see what will happen with this um, when it will be launched. Additionally, there's also increasing industry commitments in terms of consumers and advancements in technologies that we're also trying to consider here. So again, we know that most of the business customer interactions, they're wanting to see either within the energy systems of our dairy producers or others that there's zero emissions from the energy use, but then in terms of the sourcing of their raw materials, you know, how sustainably are they sourced? So that's in terms of agriculture, beef and dairy, ensuring that they have uh, clear green credentials around those. And then also that's part of this as well, consumer demands and trends and how they may shape future uh, policies and initiatives in this space. Um, I suppose just looking across Europe, again, this is just an interesting slide again, both from that company perspective to highlight you know, there's quite a wide range of food and drinks companies that are driving on in terms of wanting a, cl a climate neutral or zero carbon emissions plan going forward. So you can see there, Valio, um, Planet Proof, Danone, Tyson, Meats, you know, they all have very significant plans in this space. And then from the country perspective, again, a number of country examples there, UK, Finland, Norway, Netherlands, all with very advanced um, climate action plans right across their economy and including agriculture within that. 
Um, so where are we from the agricultural perspective within Ireland? Um, the Department of Communications and Climate Action published the Climate Action Plan last year. And I guess the big messages they were highlighting was that between 2005 and 2011, Irish agriculture emissions fell almost 10%. But since 2011, they have increased quite steadily about by, by about 13% basically undoing any of the reductions in emissions that had happened are now undone. So while overall agricultural emissions, you could argue they're just fluctuating, they haven't changed that much against the starting point, it's still, it's not good to be backsliding in terms of wanting to contribute to climate action. In terms of Ireland, agriculture is the biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions across our economy at 34%, so you can see it there. Um, you know, quite a bit significantly bigger than many of the other sectors, including transport. Then within agriculture, um, the sources of greenhouse gas emissions are methane and nitrous oxide. And again, unlike Europe, for Ireland, methane is by far the largest source of emissions. So again, it puts a lot of focus on our livestock herd and what and how we, we work with it to ensure sustainability, but also in terms of manure management and what can we do with manure. And then in terms of nitrous oxide, about half the nitrous oxide emissions are arising from fertilizer use. So you can see within the European Green Deal why there will be a focus on fertilizer use. And maybe the other one that I just want to highlight in terms of climate action, it's important not to forget that agriculture, both in Ireland and globally, is one of the sectors most impacted by climate change because we are working out in that open environment and we very much depend on the weather patterns in terms of being able to turn out our animals early and being able to save sufficient fodder for the winter. So it's important that these two aspects are integrated in terms of how we deal with them looking at policy developments going forward. And then in addition to this, agriculture is also the primary source of ammonia in Ireland. So again, coming back to that fertilizer side and ammonia emissions. And for Ireland, 99% of ammonia emissions arise from agriculture. You know, and again, you might query what's the big issue with ammonia emissions, but for, Ammonia, ammonia loss in the air, again, it's a loss to the farmer's pocket in terms of loss of fertilizer value. But on the environment, excessive ammonia emissions can impact on biodiversity and upset very sensitive ecosystems. Additionally, it can also interfere with human health. So ammonia can combine with other air pollutants to form very fine particulate matter. And this fine particulate matter gets into our, our respiratory systems and our uh, blood system and can cause um, serious human health impacts in terms of what's there. So again, you can see that there's a, a need to engage in that ammonia side. And again, it provides a point of focus in terms of climate action as well, that there's a lot of win-wins along that fertilizer management um, uh, issues that you can address at farm level. So for the climate action plan that was published last year, again, the, the table on the left there clearly highlights uh, the range of targets that all the sectors across the economy have been assigned with. And you can see at the bottom of the list there, agriculture has been assigned by far the lowest emissions reduction target for methane and nitrous oxide. You know, and again, there's a lot of, I suppose, media commentary that agriculture got away with a very low target here. But the reality is when you're looking at methane and nitrous oxide, they're very, very difficult to abate. So this, what appears to be a low abatement target is extremely ambitious for the agricultural sector in terms of how we deal with it. 
and important how we deal with it from immediately from this day forward we need to be considering our fertilizer management plan, plans in terms of how we implement better practice in this space um, so overall the climate action plan then it's setting a trajectory for net zero by 2050 so agriculture again it will have to reduce as far as possible but it is acknowledged there will be residual emissions in that space but agriculture has the advantage that in terms of land use, there is removals in terms of soil carbon sequestration and forestry sequestration that can offset those emissions. So it's important that we can consider pathways that are optimizing um, both those pathways in terms of reducing emissions and enhancing removals from the agricultural and land use sector. As I said at the start, um, our ag climatized document, which is trying to translate this sectoral target for agriculture into a sort of a, a feasible roadmap in terms of what both primary producers and the industry and various uh, supply chain actors need to do in terms of helping farmers to reduce emissions. It started off in June 2018 when we held a sustainability dialogue as part of Foodwise 2025. Since then, there has also been a citizens' assembly that's been looking at climate action across the economy, a giant Oireachtas report as well that was published last year so there's a number of documents that are all coming together to inform what we need to do within the agricultural sector the climate action plan that was published in june last year is also the first all of government approach that's assigning sector specific targets for 2030 so up until last summer ireland was basically saying that we had we had very vague plans to try and achieve our 2020 and 2030 targets. And you can see for 2020, we're way off target. We're at best maybe four to 5% below 2020 compared to a 20% target. So the government here is trying to say that independently, sectors weren't doing enough. So the Department of Climate Action is after stepping forward now to assign, I suppose, sector specific targets based on the cost effectiveness of actions within each of those sectors. And that's where we are here. So it's important that that apportionment that agriculture is seen to contribute fairly in terms of trying to ensure that it mobilizes that. In terms of the targets for agriculture then, currently agriculture emissions as of 2017 and 2018, they're about 20, 20 and a half million tonnes. In terms of the business as usual without abatement, it's projected that ag emissions will rise to an excess of 21 million tonnes. But the Climate Action Plan is expecting us to reduce our emissions to somewhere within the range of 17.5 to 19 million tonnes. So that's quite a significant re reduction trajectory for agriculture. And then the first line that's here in terms of the cumulative abatement, it's also highlighting that then between 2021 and 2030, the cumulative abatement that will be achieved in each year, so when you sum up the abatement in 2021, with each and every other year of the decade, it will add up to something in the range of 16 and a half to 18 and a half million tonnes. That is basically the entirety of the, the marginal abatement cost curve that has been done by Chagas. So there is very little room for manoeuvring this. If as a sector we're saying that there's issues here that we can't do, well then we need to be able to put forward other proposals that will make up that gap to target. That's how tight things are. Then, as I mentioned, in terms of carbon sequestration, additionally, agriculture and Irish farmers will have to engage in trying to mobilise the 26.8 million tonnes of cumulative abatement from land use change 
in particular trying to achieve our afforestation targets. And currently we're, we're mobilizing less than half of that. So it's important that we get a plan in place that can mobilize afforestation in the right location. So this is all about trying to target forestry in, in the right areas and that every farm contributes to forestry and biodiversity space on the farm. Then the other important area, I guess, more so for farmers on peat-rich soils is that we've also taken on board a target to try and reduce the management intensity on at least 40,000 hectares of carbon-rich soils that are drained for agriculture. Now, again, this is against probably an estimated agricultural area on carbon side of 300,000 hectares. So in a way, it's not that, that high a percentage. However, it's a target that must be mobilized every year. So if, if in 2021, we only have 10,000 hectares under reduced management intensity, then in subsequent years, we'll have to do slightly higher to ensure that there's an annual average of 40,000 hectares under reduced management intensity. And then the third leg of the stool in terms of what agriculture can do, it's to try and mobilize materials and residues from the agricultural sector to try and contribute to energy decarbonization. So what we're thinking about here is, I guess, wood thinnings primarily, but then also in terms of biomass from the land. Some, you know, we had support schemes in the past in terms of biomass for renewable heat. So how does agriculture feed into that? in terms of the support scheme for renewable heat to provide uh, biomass materials. But also, there's a big focus in terms of what can we do to try and mobilize manure management and possibly grass to integrate with that in terms of trying to contribute to biomethane needs for the National Gas Network. Um, stakeholders in the, that use natural gas on the system would argue that their business customers so the likes of some of our dairy companies some of their business customers are saying that they want uh, our dairy processors to further decarbonize their fuel use currently those companies are using natural gas so the only way they can reduce their the carbon content of that energy use is by having a renewable energy source within their gas system and that's thought to be biomethane, but it comes at a cost that we're trying to figure out how best to fund that through. So then this slide is an interesting one that, again, it's just stepping back to, to look at, the, I suppose, the variation in agricultural emissions since 1990. And you can see there that trough was, was uh, achieved in 2011, and we've been increasing quite steadily to presently in 2018, 2019. And you can see then the dark blue line as it projects out to 2030. Our emissions without intervention are projected to increase steadily to around 21 million tonnes. However, the Climate Action Plan, as I say, is expecting us to reduce emissions to somewhere within the range of 19, 17 and a half to 19 million tonnes. So you can see there's quite a significant gap to target to achieve that. But also, I want to clearly highlight that. The end point isn't the only important one. Where that red line intersects in 2021, 22, 23, that is an annual ceiling that the ag sector has. If as a sector we're behind on any one year, the shortfall carries forward to the subsequent year. So if we don't start abatement as soon as possible, it means that we will have built up a wave of additional credits that we need to offset 
by 2030 that could be almost impossible to deal with. So early interaction by the agri-food sector is important. And I would argue that the agri-food strategy, it's important that we're able to consider that because if by 2030 we're still on a business as usual position point, it's going to make subsequent decarbonization more painful in terms of trying to reduce emissions. Because as I said, the Green Deal will be asking for more. John, could I just ask you on that last slide there, what was the key driver to, to the downward pressure on, on overall emissions there up to 2011? Um, I guess up until 2011, maybe the biggest one there was a reduction in both fertilizer use through, I guess, the nitrates action program, but then more particularly on, I suppose, our dairy herd. So if you look at our dairy herd in 1990, we had about 1.3 million dairy cows producing 5.5 billion liters. But by 2011, we were producing the same 5.5 billion liters with only 1 million dairy cows. That was genuine sustainable intensification where the cow was producing more for, you know, so there was less cows producing more. That was the big driver that was in it and so needing less fertilizer off that. So like when you see that from the peak of 1998 to 2011, you can see that downward trajectory that was achieved there. It is feasible to do what's in that red line bandwidth that we need to be doing. However, it requires everyone to get on board in terms of what we need to do. Uh, then moving on, as I say, fertilizer is a significant uh, contribution to greenhouse gas emissions. So also on this ammonia side that I mentioned earlier on, there is significant targets there too. So the blue line there is the projection of ammonia emissions without abatement. So you can see again, it's on that upward trend since 2011. However, the orange line is illustrating our ceilings that are in place for ammonia emissions from 2010 onwards. So presently, our ammonia emissions are about 2,000 tonnes above the threshold. And without greater interaction and engagement by farmers and the wider industry in terms of trying to reduce uh, ammonia emissions, we will be exceeding that target. And unlike carbon where technically you can trade a certain amount of carbon credits on ammonia it's an absolute target there's no flexibility so if ireland is seen not to correct this the european commission will be coming after us to find the country to try and penalize to ensure that we we get back on target within this space the department of climate action and communications is again the lead department they submitted a, a clean air action plan last april which is showing non-compliance at the moment. So we're in the process of trying to figure out how to update that marginal abatement cost curve. And again, why there is a particular focus on nitrogen management, manure management in the climate action plan at Climate Heights. So it's trying to bring us back on target in terms of where we're going. So you can see from 2020, this year onward, that ceiling reduces to 112,000 tonnes. And from 2030 onwards, it reduces further. So it's important that we're sort of trying to future-proof our engagements about, around better fertilizer and manure management in terms of achieving this. And livestock numbers, again, are a key contributor to that target. So improved management strategies will be important in that, in particular around housing. 
Then in terms of, I guess, coming back to the targets that were set to agriculture for the greenhouse gas emissions, I mentioned the Chagas MAC curve. And in particular, the diagram there on the left-hand side is the Chagas MAC for reducing methane and ammonia emissions. So there was a big focus on that. And as I say, so when you look at the entire width of that chart from left to right, that is the maximum abatement from the options that were identified. So you can see the scale across the bottom. That's just above 1.8 million tons was, was identified. So the Climate Action Plan is, is asking us to mobilize as much of that each and every year of the next decade. So it is quite a significant ask. Then in terms of, I suppose, that cost-benefit analysis that farmers and advisors would be interested in, anything that's below the zero axis is cost-beneficial for the farmer. So you can see all around breeding strategy, animal health issues, better nutrient use efficiency, so better implementation of uh, nutrient management plans. They all contribute significantly cost-beneficially to a farmer to both reduce emissions and enhance profitability. The next big one then in the middle of the chart is fertilizer type, and this is around protected nitrogen, in particular protected urea at the moment, and I guess a big focus around trying to change the fertilizer type from straight urea to protected urea in the first instance, and then to try and consider how we change that uh, can that we use to protected urea as we move on. And then at the end of the chart there, you can see low emission spreading for greenhouse gas emissions is above that line and significantly ab above the zero line. However, when low emission spreading is looked at for ammonia abatement, it's significantly below the zero axis. So again, why we're trying to integrate greenhouse gas and ammonia targets in terms of mobilizing action. So it's important when you're looking at a, an a MAC curve, you understand the boundaries that it's taken from the perspective of the farmer, and of greenhouse gas emissions. But for agriculture, we have multiple environmental challenges from ammonia to water quality to biodiversity. So how we integrate those to pick off these best actions is what we're trying to get a sense of in terms of the Ag Climatized document. Then the bullet points that are on the right-hand side of the chart here are the main messages that the Climate Change Council illustrated in terms of the a special chapter they put in their annual report last year. So again, you can see their focus on the Chagas Mac curve to mobilize as much as possible of this. Again, on reducing the management intensity of drained peatlands. So again, that's one of the items we have within our action plan. And then afforestation, those are the three big actions. So there's a consistency of approach there in terms of what the advisory council is saying, what the Mac curve is saying, and what we in terms of policy development are trying to push forward. Then it's also highlighting the importance of research and development in terms of trying to get the next generation of technologies out there that can help us to reduce emissions. And the Ag Climatized document is trying to highlight that. And then the importance of, I suppose, stakeholder engagement to ensure that everyone is on the same page moving forward in terms of adoption and strategies and to ensure that we leave no one behind in terms of adoption of these or in terms of significant land use change that are happening. And then also the importance of knowledge transfer and farm advisory. So both Chagas and private advisory are key to mobilizing all of this, as are all the sales industry that engages with farmers selling fertilizer and selling feeding stuffs. So how do we ensure everyone is on the same page? And then that verification and monitoring 
piece in terms of ensuring that what farmers do, we get credit for it in terms of emissions reductions appearing in the national inventory, and also in terms of getting credit through origin green and marketing the green credentials of Irish agriculture. So it's linking everything up. In terms of the ag climatise, composed of three elements, again, implementing the changes, the importance of working in partnership, and also of preparing for the future in terms of that future proofing where we develop the agricultural sector going forward. In terms of the step up in ambition that the Climate Action Plan and Ag Climatise is trying to do, uh, you can see some of the key actions here, again, around that replacing canned fertilizer, low emission spreading, animal breeding, afforestation, reduced management intensity. And they're the targets that are in the Climate Action Plan. But the ones that I've highlighted yellow are the ones that within the Ag Climatise we're trying to bring forward even faster than what Minister Bruton's Climate Action Plan was doing. Now, that was put out there. Again, some of the feedback we're getting is that we need to focus more on reducing the absolute amount of chemical nitrogen first and foremost in terms of better nutrient management efficiency and use of lime rather than focusing on protected urea to start with. You know, changing urea to protected urea is probably straightforward, but moving on the can could take a little bit longer. So again, we're trying to consider that. And also, you know, as I say, trying to make nutrient management planning easier for farmers and advisors in terms of engagement, and in particular on improving soil fertility to ensure that we need the minimum amount of chemical nitrogen as we move forward. Um, then in terms of the bottom, the guiding principles that we had in Ag Climatise was around the three pillars of emissions reduction. So that's reducing methane and nitrous oxide, land use mitigation, and then sustainable use of resources in terms of supply for that energy or broader economy. And then being responsible and transparent in terms of how we move forward with it all. And the number five, building resilience, trying to ensure that we're also climate proofing the agricultural system against changes in temperature that might impact on productivity or animal health or crop health in terms of what's out there. And then the key importance of research and development to identify future solutions. Um, there's some good examples of collaboration that are already out there. So the Bride project is very good that's there and there's a number of other European innovation partnership projects that are there. You know, these are bot bottom up led from farmers on the ground in terms of what they can do. So, you know, how can we scale up action within those spaces? The ASA program is also there in terms of where the dairy industry, the Department of Agriculture and the Department of Housing contributed funding to put special advisors on the ground to target water quality in very specific catchments. And again, that shows that there can be good collaboration to address nutrient management at farmer level. Then outside of, I guess, the government and its agencies, uh, the IFA and Smart Farming are also pushing forward a Smart Farming initiative where they're engaging again on the same key farm management details with the EPA in terms of what can be done. So again, that's a very good program, again, showing where farmers can lead the charge in terms of adopting change. And then also we know that when agriculture is under a lot of pressure, such as it was under the fire crisis, all the actors within the agricultural sector do come together to try and address the challenge that was there in terms of fodder supply. So again, it highlights the importance that everyone coming together to try and address the challenge of reducing emissions and trying to build on the momentum that something like that can do. And it's important that we take reducing emissions in that sense that it is equally urgent to what that urgency was around the fodder crisis. 
So, as I mentioned earlier on, this is the evolution of, uh, I suppose, the ag climatized document where we are, where we are now, and where it started from. So you can see there was very significant consultation has been received and stakeholder engagement. You know, and this is by far greater than what we have received on many other consultations that, be, that have been done over recent years, where normally it might be around 130 to 150 uh, submissions. Here you can see it was in excess of 500. So how we deal with that is uh, what we're in the middle of trying to do it at the moment. So then just to move quickly again through some of the items that were coming up in terms of consultation, it's around soil fertility and nutrient management. So as I said, overall there was a you know, this is seen to be a positive that farmers can do a lot in this space. And I think the likes of the ASA program illustrates a lot can be done. But it's important that we just make nutrient management planning as simple as possible for all those that are involved to ensure that it results in reductions in the absolute amount of chemical nitrogen that's used. And that we maximize the recycling of manures on the farm in terms of where we are and encourage biological nitrogen fixation where it is. So again, that clover piece needs very ideal um, soil fertility levels to maintain uh, clover cover in the sward. Then some of the challenges that have been identified around the incorporation of manures on arable land and how we go about that, but also in terms of farmers being able to adopt grass me measuring software. You know, I guess there's a hesitancy and engaging on that. Time availability to the farmer is probably an issue. And then also we want to try and identify a blueprint from, for near or zero, near zero nitrogen use in terms of farming practice. And again, it's important to consider that the vast majority of farmers that are out there are at modest to low stocking density. So are we meeting their needs in terms of optimizing soil fertility and nutrient cycling? And then also there seems to be a big interest in terms of carbon trading and how or where we put that. Um, I suppose the background on that is, you know, we want to be very cautious of the administrative burden that might be within some of that, but yet farmers feel there's a significant importance of trying to identify the soil carbon sequestration, hedgerow sequestration, woodland sequestration that might be on farms. So it would be important that we try and consider that. On the protected urea part, again, it was highlighted that to protect urea, to change from urea to protected urea, probably straightforward enough, but to move on, faster on can could could be dangerous in terms of where we are so like we need to focus on that reducing chemical nitrogen use first and foremost in terms of where we are and then also there was a sense that we're putting too much emphasis on that protected urea before we were doing the other actions so it's important to sort of have the correct hierarchy of what we're doing here in terms of soil fertility and reduce use first before using the protected nitrogen types then in, in terms of, I guess, why I have the soil carbon piece down here, overall improved soil fertility enhances the ability of soil to sequester additional carbon. So within this space, again, I highlight, um, there's little benefit of sequestering carbon if we're losing carbon from peaty soils. So the first step in the soil carbon space is to reduce emissions from carbon-rich soils. Then the next one is to try and be able to identify what are the additional sequestration that's possible from the, our better mineral soils. And then within the arable system, what are the, I suppose, regenerative farming practice techniques could, that could be adopted by arable farmers to move forward. In terms of livestock breeding and feeding strategies, 
I guess in this space, there's still a lot of mixed messages because there's such a range of uh, indicators within this from the dairy EBI that's obviously well adopted by dairy farmers to beef genomics, where it's the farmers that are doing it are happy, but there's still mixed messages in terms of what it's about. And then within the dairy space, there's the dairy beef index. You know, and it's important that once dairy farmers have their replacement selected, that the dairy beef index is utilized in terms of, to ensure that uh, non-breeding dairy stock are suitable for the beef sector. Um, in terms of what was seen to be more achievable was more herds milk recording to try and again improve that data flow in terms of milk yield per cow back into that breeding strategy. And then the importance of earlier slaughter for beef animals, you know, again, trying to reduce that herd, avoiding having um, animals in the system for too long. And then on the feeding strategies, there's a lot of issues that are going on this, but I guess the early one that people were identifying was to try and optimize or reduce crude protein levels in the diets while not impacting on animal health. And also a big discussion around uh, the role of native grain and proteins in the ruminant diet and how do we better mobilize that. And then the key res research area was on the importance of looking into advanced feed additives to reduce methane and ammonia emissions that can work in a grazed animal situations such as in Ireland. In terms of afforestation and land use, you can see on the afforestation targets, we do have a problem there and a lot will have to be re-looked at to see how we can mobilize more forestry. But looking at that, there's only about 10 to just over 10% of farmers strongly agree that the afforestation targets are achievable. You know, that's putting a lot of farmers that are outside of that space. So what can we do to try and help mobilize that is something that we still need to look at. Then in terms of helping to transition land use to lower carbon forms of farming, obviously the top of the list there, again, the advisory strategy, trying to help farmers to optimize that land management was seen to be key to that. And this is the order of ranking that um, stakeholders put down there. Nature-based solutions, again, highlighting hedgerows and small farm woodlands. Farmers very willing to engage in that space. But when you move on to that very significant land chain, use change of afforestation, less willing to engage in that. And then what was more interesting was there appears to be a hesitancy of farmers looking at alternative cropping systems. You know, what's around horticulture or arable that might be worthwhile. You know, and I guess some of that is around the economics but also around trying to understand what are there. So what can the advisory service do to better open up the opportunities that are there for land diversification, whether that's into ecotourism or whether it's into just, um, you know, um, micro, micro cropping or any of these other issues that are there in the horticulture and how do you look at with that? And I guess within some of those alternative crops, such as around horticulture, there's a fear that, while in beef and dairy, there is a, a very clear link of the farmer being able to sell his product through a system that's in place in terms of co-ops and factories. When you're in horticulture, you're engaging directly with the retailer, and that's seen to be a very significant challenge. So how do we make that easier for farmers, possibly through more producer organizations or co-ops again, to give scale to what are small-scale farmers, and how do we move through that? John, we have some uh, really good questions coming through here. So if you could uh, yeah. wrap up your presentation in the next two minutes, we'll, we'll get yeah. to the questions, some really excellent questions coming through. 
Perfect. Thanks, Mark. So then on the sustainable energy, again, I won't highlight there. The big message here was, again, farmers are interested. They realize that they will have residual emissions, so they want to engage in this. However, access to the grid infrastructure is difficult, and it's a very expensive game at the moment. So without the right incentives, farmers and stakeholders feel they can't do that. So how do we, how do we improve that uh, framework in terms of farmers and the agri-industry to engage in that more? You know, some of that is coming down to raising awareness, but also having in place the right incentives in terms of pushing forward. I guess the important thing, again, highlighting within all this, is that collaboration is essential to driving these forward between the industry, Chagas, Board Bia, the private advisors, the Department of Agriculture to achieve on-farm impact. Everyone believes that CAP can do a lot, but funding is limited, so it can't. So it's important that the market steps in to encourage some of these actions as well. So how do we get that right balance between what CAP needs to support and incentivize and how the market could support or incentivize other issues? And then for regulation to step in in areas where change is moving too slow and the role of advisory to ensure that every advisor or farm advisor is engaging on the same message. So I'll leave you with, with a quote by Franklin D. Roosevelt that I heard the other day that I heard, thought was important. And basically he's saying that, you know, we need to continue trying to do something to reduce emissions. You know, so it's, we need bold, persistent experimentation with how we manage farming systems and land use to try and ensure we have a more sustainable system going forward. And I thought it was quite apt for this. So I'll leave you with that. Okay, thank you. That's great, John. Thank you very much for that excellent pres presentation. Uh, we're just going to switch back to our videos now. So um, I want you to, to switch on your video there and maybe you could stop sharing your screen also. So um, thank you so much, everybody, for sending in your questions. Uh, lots and lots of questions. And I can tell you now that we're, we're not going to have time to get through all of them. But uh, certainly uh, it, it, we may indeed decide to, to do some follow on to try and uh, uh, answer all uh, all of your questions here because really excellent questions coming through. So um, a few questions in relation to um, ammonia, um, John. Um, the, the question here: There's been an interesting results from changing from grass to clover, uh, which needs less fertilizer, uh, which would reduce our ammonia emissions. Given the serious consequences from ammonia, should we not be seriously pursuing this change away from? Uh, grasses or reducing our dependency on grasses. Have you any response to that, John? Yeah, well, sure. I guess overall, this is part of the discussion that we're trying to have in this space, you know, and again, the importance of advisory. But a key issue, as I understand within Clover, is the importance of soil fertility to ensure persistency of it. So there's some interesting work in Chagas and UCD in terms of Clover and mixed species wards that can help with that. But again, it's coming back to this point. There has been a tendency of us to focus on every farmer wants maximum output. And I think the sense we're getting back within the system, there is a large cohort of farmers that are at modest or low stocking densities that need want to know what are the alternative low input systems that they can do that can help them to achieve what it is. So we need to sort of improve how we interact with those to meet their needs as well. The question here, John, how important are early improvements in key mitigation actions such as protected urea and low emissions slurry spreading you know, in terms of actually getting on that treadmill of, of uh, driving down those emissions? 
Well, overall, they're essential because, again, as I highlighted, everyone in terms of, you know, for example, 2020 was focusing just on 2020. It's way down the road. It's 10 years away. No need to worry about we can achieve that target when we get closer to the year. But the issue that I'm trying to highlight within all this, there is actually an interim target within each and every year of the next decade. So the sooner you can adopt protected urea to replace urea, the better. And the sooner more and more farmers engage in better manure management and recycling of manures available under holding to minimize that chemical requirement, the better it is too in terms of reducing emissions of ammonia arising from slurry management. You know, there's too much of a hesitancy still that manure is a waste to be disposed of. It is a valuable nutrient and farmers need to quickly acknowledge what that is to achieve better recycling. And then on, you know, nutrient management, Chagas have a great online nutrient management planning platform. We need to ensure that that's as easy as possible for everyone to utilize, that it's an automatic reaction to look at it rather than going, I'm spreading what I always spread. I don't worry about this. Every little bit matters in terms of the targets that we have. Okay, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, John, uh, can you clarify what is intended by reduced management intensity? And does this, does he, do you see a future for agri-environment schemes having a payment for this? So some form of extensification, I imagine, is what that question relates to. Yeah, well, I guess, again, the main point here is intensive management of peat-rich soils is releasing an incredible amount of CO2 from land. You know, we need to get on top of that. So yes, it is around extensive stocking rate, higher water tables potentially in those peat rich soils. But again, from what we see, we're trying to do an analysis at the moment in terms of gloss participants, and there's options there of uh, low input permanent pasture, wader bird management and we're trying to see how well do they align with some of that peat rich soils that's under agriculture management and i expect we will have some alignment there already so some of this could be on the ground but it's about trying to mobilize the data back through so dpa pick it up in their inventory again it's the importance of this monitoring and verification we need it now more than ever to illustrate everything that farmers are doing and we acknowledge they're doing a lot but at the moment, we're just not good enough at getting that data through the system to be reflected in the inventory. John, do you think that the targets of uh, 17 and a half megatons of CO2 uh, for agriculture in climate action, the climate action plan might be even further reduced in the coming years, reflecting the Green Deal and increased aspirations by the EU? Uh, do you see any uh, changes there? Yeah, well, I suppose we, that's why we're interested to see what uh, the farm to fork strategy will say in terms of the emissions. But I suppose one thing to be clear, within the IPCC report, they do acknowledge a different trajectory of emissions reduction for methane. You know, so it needs to reduce significantly. I would argue that that trajectory that's there is very close to being on parity for that. Um, so to me, in terms of the Green Deal, I would say it's probably more around land use credits. Ireland could do more. If we have in excess of 300,000 hectares of agricultural land on peaty soils and our target is only 40,000 hectares, I would argue there's more maybe on that side of it than on the reducing emissions. But again, I would say everything is potentially up for grabs beyond 2030. 
in terms of needing to reduce further and achieve a balance between emissions and renewables. A few questions, John, in relation to food security and obviously the the current COVID crisis uh, that's uh, happening across the world. Could you uh, comment on the potential impact of that? I know we're very early stages of analysis of the impact of, of COVID, but you know, particularly in light of the renewed focus on food security and the importance of supply chains, do you see uh, that having an impact on our overall uh, climate uh, change effort uh, or, or the policy? Yeah, I guess overall there's a certain amount we can, we will probably learn from this in terms of resilience of food supply chains right across the globe and how you have more local production. But I suppose, you know, when I, I look at Ireland, we have a big horticultural sector, you know, big enough for, I think it's about 10,000 hectares are under horticulture in Ireland. It's worth in excess of 400 million. So per hectare, it's a very valuable land use. The challenge that's within the sector is how producers engage with the retailer. They're not as distant as they are in beef and dairy. Mm -hmm. So uh, unless we have producer organizations that can sort of match up that fairness between the two, this is a challenging space to get into. But on the climate aspect, I guess, you know, within food supply chains, globally where we get some foods from, will they be under more water stress than they presently are? So is there a need that we step into this, you know, to try and scale it up a little bit more? Probably. But the, I suppose the context I would put on it, even for Ireland to step up significantly in something like horticulture, it's still a very small area relative to our in excess of 4 million hectares of UAA. So I would still argue we will still have a lot of grassland and therefore likely a significant rump of ruminant animals on that pasture. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's within that practicality you're trying to, to look at. And even within some of your high nature value, you need livestock to be on those systems to protect biodiversity. So it's about how do we better optimize land productivity potentials with outputs that are there and ensure that we protect those arable and horticultural sectors in Ireland. We have a question from a farmer here, John. Uh, is there any plan to tighten up on which urea products can be marketed as protected? And maybe a follow on to that as well is, I mean, are there plans to restrict or monitor um, fertilizers uh, at a farm level as well. I know that there's uh, increased requirement, reporting requirements for farmers uh, within a derogation situation. Um, but do you see a situation where farmers like uh, veterinary medicines would have to pre present their herd number when purchasing fertilizer? Yeah, well, I suppose overall that poses challenges, how you, you put a system in place, you know, cross-border movements of fertilizer that may happen if there wasn't similar in the north. So, you know, you have to, I suppose, weigh up the balances against potential risks that are within something like that. You know, even within farms, with farms that don't use, need as much nitrogen, start trading with their neighbors that need more. Mm -hmm. You know, so what sort of unintended consequences would be in something like that? But overall, I would argue, yes, we need to try and enforce the rules that are there under nitrates more rigorously down than currently probably to ensure that everyone buys into it. But again, I like to think that, you know, it is about 
farmers engaging more actively in the nutrient management planning that's been currently done and take more heed of what information is there can achieve outputs. You know, fertilizer use has fluctuated a lot in recent years, and you'd hope that we can get on top of it to start bringing it down. Specifically in relation to the, the urea part of that question, is, are there any plans to tighten up on yes. which urea As I under- be marketed? Yeah, so as I understand, there is a fertilizer marketing regulation at EU level, and currently they're looking at what the specifications of those various products would be to try and better tighten up what would be accepted or not accepted. And, you know, um, additive addition rates that would be within those products. So this is something that is evolving more as we move forward. Question in relation to uh, ammonia emissions and, well, greenhouse gas emissions and ammonia. So what are the consequences uh, if we don't start showing uh, early reductions? Um, so if we arrive in 2025 or 2023 and, and not showing progress being made, are there consequences to that? Yeah, well, sure, overall, you know, in terms of origin green as the green credentials of Irish agriculture, if we're not achieving the targets that were set out and shown good faith in trying to go in the right direction, potential impacts across that marketing credibility, both in greenhouse gas and ammonia. I guess that's the biggest one. Technically on the greenhouse gas side, you can buy credits, but as I say, if you buy credits up to who's paying for them, is it the farmer buying them? You know, because we know the Joe public at the moment will say, I don't want it. The farmer has already got the lowest target. Now he's expecting me to buy the credits for non-achievement of his low target, while I have to invest so heavily in having an electric car and deep retrofit of my private home. You know, so we have to ensure fairness right across this in terms of the immediacy of that. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to 2022 or 2023, as per the question, potentially we'll have to look at other regulatory approaches to try and drive down emissions, you know, and. That's the matter of fact of this. We don't have a way to maneuver out of it, in a way. On the ammonia side, if we're not bringing our target, our ammonia emissions back in line with the targets, uh, technically the European Court of Justice can fine us. You know, both daily and annual fines for non-compliance until you bring yourself back correct. So that's probably more rigorous in terms of the immediacy that it could happen. But those ECJ cases can take time in terms of impact. But again, I would argue the consumer, the social license to farm that the public in Ireland are willing to accept, they'll go, it's not acceptable. So the sooner farmers and all stakeholders acknowledge that it's quite important that this is only going one direction, but we do want a sustainable land use and economic land use to contribute to viable rural areas. John, a lot of the focus has been on the dairy industry. We have a question here um, asking what are the opportunities for farmers on marginal ground uh, if forestry seems to be overlooked by the farming community? Uh, I know in your presentation you mentioned forestry there and the the 10%, I think, was it, that uh, felt that it, it wasn't. They didn't see it as part of the solution, if I'm, I'm uh, paraphrasing that correctly. Um, so for for and we know that there's you know a lot of 
land in Ireland is, is being farmed uh, in a less extensive manner. Where do you see the opportunities for those farmers? Yeah, well, I guess overall it's, um, again, through the likes of the agri-environment, it's how we set up the system to, I would argue, right-size those stock intensities to achieve multiple benefits in those marginal areas. You know, some of them, there is still biodiversity pressures that we're not acknowledging. The farmer might be extensive, but it still mightn't be done right. And it, even as I understand in the asset program, it's been illustrated that it's some of the extensive farmers throughout wintering or poaching are causing sediment issues in watercourses. So I would still argue there's issues that can be corrected just because you have a low stock density doesn't necessarily mean no environmental impact. But the question is, how do we put a framework in place that ensures the, the viability of what those are and the contribution that they are in rural areas? And that's exactly what we, we want to try and get at to ensure that there is space for all these. Maybe it's alternative systems of forestry you know, agroforestry, is that an option in these spaces? How we tease it out? Mm -hmm. You know, again, every farm in theory, I remember back in the days of reps, every farmer was to identify an area suitable for forestry. They didn't have to consider it. So I'd suggest all these farmers that were in reps previously dig out those plans if they're on the, the top of the dresser mm -hmm. and have a look to see what was being said in that plan to see if you can consider these spaces. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, for us to relook at forestry, the survey was illustrated that 10% disagree with the 8,000 hectares mm. and a further 14 or 15% say that it's, you know, highly unfeasible. So there's 25% there that are on the negative side of um, to mobilize that afforestation. So how do, do we work with that? I know on the forest side, they're looking at a voluntary carbon market system for woodland credits. Maybe something like that can help as well. You know, and again, as I said, how we look at hedgerows in the landscape, small woodlands in the landscape, maybe to see what way a carbon scheme would work in farming. But as I say, the challenge is it's that bureaucracy or oversight of the system in terms of how it adds up. John, you mentioned in your, your in ending slides there about um, solar power and bioenergy bio and solar power. Uh, from the questions coming in here, I'm getting a sense of frustration about the speed at which uh, the, the opportunities for farmers to feed into the national grid and to be contributing. Uh, I accept that uh, agriculture probably is quite a low contributor uh, to, to overall uh, CO, direct CO2 emissions through, through energy usage. But there is there are opportunities there for agriculture to 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 reduce the overall energy uh coming uh, being produced from fossil fuels in ireland uh, are there are there plans to accelerate that program or what what are the timelines there in giving farmers the ability to to feed into the, the national grid and and to actually start contributing there like i guess overall like the climate action plan is saying you know in terms of biomethane that we're to mobilize this 1.6 terawatt hour so at the moment we're consulting with decay to see what can be, be done in that space mobilizing manures for biomethane is very challenging because of the cost that's with it, involved within that you know and ultimately that's something that will take time but like in the other areas of biomass mobilization you know there is opportunity opportunities on the support scheme for renewable heat to be supplying biomass into that 
It's expected at the start. Tinnings from the forestry side will contribute first and foremost to it, and then potentially further biomass. If grass silage is to be moving into biomethane, it has to be produced, you know, with very low levels of nitrogen input to achieve the sustainability criteria of biomethane. So overall, I would argue it's a very challenging space on that. Then on the solar PV, under TAMS, we have uh, grants there for solar PV. And I know of a dairy company that is collaborating, you know, partnering up with that grant to help its suppliers put solar PV on farm buildings and connect into the grid. So I expect opportunities like that sort of collaboration sh should be looked at closely to see how you scale them up. SAI are running a series of online training events at the moment to better inform advisors in terms of and consumers in terms of energy use and opportunities energy efficiency at farm level. I know within TAMS we have a lot of energy efficiency measures for dairy farms. Mm -hmm. You know, but when you're looking at the big energy users within agriculture of dairy, horticulture, arable, they need to look at energy efficiencies and the sources of their energy to try and see what they can do and there is opportunities within that space. You know, and over recent years, some horticulture producers have engaged in very unique schemes in terms of solar PV, again, in terms of the marketing credentials of um, selling their produce and helping to connect them in with the retail chain better than ever in terms of the evidence that's there. So it's how do we learn from the good practice that's on it? Um, there's an interesting European innovation platform here in the Midlands at the moment with um, small scale AD plants. So again, what we learn off those will help to scale up that. Um, but again, it's financing will be the big challenge within this and how you mobilize, I suppose, that correct funding means through to support better rollout of renewable energy at farm level. John, final question for you. Um, and I think it sums up uh, a lot of the discussion. The question is, if emission reductions are not on target, Will stock numbers have to be reduced like other countries in the EU? Well, I suppose at the moment, the policy is that our stock numbers are safe to 2030 if we mobilize all the actions. Um, we're also looking at new technologies in terms of that feed, for, feed additives, in terms, you know, there's some very advanced ones that are out there that can help with this. And potentially by mid decade, they could be groundbreaking, you know, game changers in terms of where we are. Um, but at the end of the day, yeah, potentially stock numbers will come under closer scrutiny as you move on if you're not achieving the reductions that are necessary. So how do we learn to better optimize our systems? And I would argue every farm, no matter what your stocking density, can contribute something. So it's how do we better sort of optimize that system to achieve the multiple landscape objectives that are out there whether that's water quality by the air quality climate action in terms of how we move forward and learn to better communicate what farmers are doing in various areas because i think some of this is coming down to very spatially specific actions and you can see with our agri environment from reps which was a whole farm approach to now glass being a specific action in the right place we're getting ever more tighter in terms of how we evolve those schemes so I would expect a further evolution again as we move post 2020 in terms of better targeting, better value for money. And then how do we mobilize that credentials of origin green to achieve more through the marketing system? 
you know, so in a way, like the EU life programs where the burn life started out and it's had a very afterlife through various rural development schemes, you could foresee certain schemes that we now have under the CAP at some point should the market be taking ownership of some of these items to try and help fund that incentivization needs that's there to support farmers in the right direction. And results driven schemes, of course, as well, which uh, Burn is a great example of. John, um, we're going to have to leave it there. We're just out of time. Uh, Thank you very much uh, for your time today. Excellent presentation, really positive feedback from our audience today. Um, Just for people who are uh, maybe want to to review the the presentation, the presentation will be available on on the Chagas website. And also we are recording today's uh, uh, webinar, so that will be also available for people who wish to uh, to uh, to access it access it at a later stage or indeed share it with with other people. Um, just a reminder that uh, the Chagas uh, Connected program uh, has, has launched a free digital version for people who wish to stay up to date with latest updates and science and policy and. Um, advice from Chagask, uh, you just log into the Chagask website and go to chagask.ie forward slash connected and click on join today. And there's a very short form there for you to sign up to dig- connected digital. Um, so so that's uh, that's available now if you wish to uh, make uh, use of uh, the, and, and be uh, updates on the latest uh, from Chagask. Um, also, after today's webinar, there will be you'll be asked to uh, f- fill out a short survey. We would be really grateful to you to if you could take the time to, to fill out that survey, uh, because that gives us uh, a feedback on uh, you know the areas that you're interested in hearing about. Um, so finally, I'd like to thank our backroom team, in particular Andy Boland, Pat Murphy and Yvonne Marr, and all of our partners that we mentioned earlier on. Uh, Thank you for listening this morning. Stay safe. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagask.ie. And you can also rate, review, and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson, and thanks for listening.